Today, we're going to be continuing our series in Daniel, and we've arrived at chapter 3. And so to begin, just before Micah begins preaching, I'm going to read that out for you now, and then we will dive in together. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image of King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that he had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, or in every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not and uh, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and meticulously accused the Jews. They declared the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man hears the sound of a horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. If this is to be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And if he will not deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not, 
but is known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, in their tunics, in their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated, the flames of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three bound men into the fire? They answered and said, yes, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and their appearance of the fourth man is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abendo, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than worship and serve any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego should be torn from limb from limb, and their houses laid to ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lee. Let's give Lee a hand for that, hey? That's why I get Lee to read these stories, because he has such an awesome storyteller voice, amen? (laughs) Well, church, we're going to be continuing our studies in Daniel 3, and we're going to be looking at the story today of the fiery furnace. It's a pretty wild story, isn't it? It's absolutely fascinating, and I'm sure some of you, anyone who sort of grew up in Sunday school in the early church at a young age, who remembers this story? few, right? Well, hopefully we can build some more insight to what's actually going on here and a little more insight of how it applies to us as the people of God today. Now, first of all, we've been looking at this theme in Daniel, and the theme is, I switched the slides so you couldn't cheat. A God in control for who? Uh, People who are not, right? 
That's the theme we've been looking at, a God in control for people who are not. And really what we're trying to do in this study of Daniel, this this 6th century before Christ document, this ancient document talking about the people of God, what we're really trying to examine and look at in this document is how do we, as followers of Jesus, how do we live in a post-Christian world? How do we live, as Daniel describes, as exiles in Babylon? How do we live in a culture and society that is anti-Christian and even anti-God at times, and especially in our Canadian context, a, a context and a nation that has grown in secularism since the 1960s extremely vastly? How do we serve in a context where the church has moved from the middle of the influence of society to the margins of society? How do we live in a context where even at times our family and friends and our co-workers and the systems and structures are often antagonistic to the gospel? How do we live in this culture in this time? And if you remember, part of the answer to that is from Jeremiah 29. And Jeremiah the prophet wrote a letter to those who are in exile. And what does he tell to do to the people who oversee the the people of God in exile? He says to do what to them? To bless them, right? To bless them, which is a wild concept when you think about what it means to be in exile. These are people who had their homelands, everything taken from them, And yet Jeremiah says, basically, bless those who have persecuted, bless those who have torn you apart from your homeland, bless those who have ripped your family apart, and even for Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, bless those who even took your ability to have offspring and the very life you wanted to procreate. And so this is a massive calling that Jeremiah gives the exiles to be a blessing. And this is the same call we have as the church today, amen? Jesus tells us to love not just those we love, but also to love our enemies, which as Ahmed was sharing in the Sunday school class this morning, this is unique about the Christian worldview. No other worldview tells us to love our enemies. And yet Christianity, the teachings of Jesus, even goes that far where we are called to love our enemies. Now, How do we live in a context in society which pushes against Christianity is a relatively new question for the Canadian church. But thankfully, it is not a new question for much of the global church, and thankfully, it's not a new question, especially for the early church. And and I want to look at this quote from a, a second century document. This is a writing from the early church, Matthias to Diognetius. And uh, it's this fascinating description of how the early church responded to a culture and society that was completely antagonistic to them. In a culture and society that at times, local and sporadic, had heavy persecution and martyrdom against the church. And this is what he says. Second century says, For Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country or by speech, or by dress. For they do not dwell in cities of their own, or use a different language or practice a peculiar life. But while they dwell in Greek or barbarian cities, 
according to as each person's lot has been cast and follow the customs of the land in clothing and food and other matters of daily life. In other words, they look pretty normal from the outside. Yet, yet, the condition of citizenship by which they exhibit is wonderful and admittedly strange. They live in countries of their own, but simply as sojourners. They share the life of citizens. They endure the lot of foreigners. Every land is foreign to them, a homeland. And every homeland, a foreign land. They spend their existence upon the earth, but their citizenship is where? In heaven. Their citizenship is in heaven. Which means that for the church and us as Christians, our whole perspective about identity, our whole perspective about where our ultimate purpose is found, our whole perspective towards where history is moving is found in our citizenship in heaven. And what he's saying is what sets a church apart, what it means to be the church is to follow a way of life that has distinctly eternal perspective. And it's a life that is transformed, that understands that even when all the nations and in the kingdoms of humans work against God, God is in control even when His people are not. Amen? And our citizenship is as kingdom citizens. And the story we have read today and the story we read throughout the global church in places like Iran and Africa and Syria and China and the global church, we realize that when the kingdoms of humans push against the forces of kingdom of God, there's going to be conflict, isn't there? And we read stories of persecution and we read stories of hardship and we read stories of difficulty. And yet we continually have to be reminded over and over again that our God is in control. And that the kingdom of God will outlast every kingdom. And, and this is what the early church believed as well. And so let me, let me read to you about the, the church historian Eusebius. And he's writing in the 4th century. And he gives a description of how the early church reacted against cultures and societies that were antagonistic to the church. And he says this, he said, We ourselves beheld, in other words, we were eyewitnesses. When we were at these places, many all at once in a single day, some of whom suffered beheading, others punishment by fire. And what did we just read in Daniel 3? What was the punishment to not bow to King Nebuchadnezzar? It was fire, right? That continued through the history of the people of God in the early church. Others were punished by fire so that the murderous axe was dulled. Think of that description. And worn out. It was broken in pieces, and the executioners grew utterly weary against the church. But here's how the church responded. It was then that we observed a most marvelous eagerness and a truly divine power and zeal in those who place their faith in the Christ of God. Thus, as soon as sentence was given 
against the first, from, from, from one quarter and others from another, would leap up to the tribunal before the judge and confess themselves to be what? In a Roman Empire which was completely antagonistic to the gospel, who were literally martyring people, we see Eusebius telling us that even in the midst of the greatest threat of life, people were voluntarily admitting themselves to be Christian. Is that not very similar to the story we've just read of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? This is the story of the history of the people of God. A people who face marginalization, a people who face persecution, and yet who God proves again and again to be faithful and good and in control. That is our hope this morning. And so uh, I want us to use this story as a reminder for us, a reminder that even all the, the greatest threats we face as humanity, that God is with us and God will restore and redeem us. Amen? Okay, so let's, let's talk a little bit more about what is, what is going on in this story. Um, we, we have such a profound story here, such a radical story. And so we see King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember from chapter 2, Daniel tells him what his dream is all about. And there's this statue that he has in the dream, and that the top of the statue, the head of the statue was what? A golden head. And who did Daniel say that represented? That's the Babylonian Empire, right? That's King Nebuchadnezzar. Biggest empire, strongest empire at the time, most powerful in the world. And so Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that there's going to be something that destroys that idol. And what is it? It's a big rock. It's a stone. And yet Nebuchadnezzar seems to understand, but right after this, as soon as Daniel tells them that King Nebuchadnezzar, you're the golden head, what do we see Nebuchadnezzar waking up wanting to do? He builds what? He builds this massive gold statue. That's the conclusion he came to. And we don't know if it was a statue of King Nebuchadnezzar himself or it was one of the Babylonian deities. We don't know exactly what it was, but we know that it was made of gold and it was made so the Babylonian empire would be worshipped and bowed down to. Now, if you remember, Babylon in Scripture is much more than just a nation. It's much more than a city, right? It's an archetype. And the Babylonian archetype represented what? what? What story does it go back to in Genesis? The Tower of Babel, right? Where humanity wanted to elevate themselves. Humanity wanted to be the center of creation. Humanity wanted to be God in and of themselves. And so this Babylonian archetype throughout Scripture is human desire to be God. Human desire to have control and power, right? Human desire to have control and power. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, he gathers all the, the important people of culture and society and he, he grabs all these Babylonian cultures to come together and he says, you need to worship this God. You need to worship this idol. You need to proclaim the worthiness of the Babylonian Empire, so to say. And it was this, again, this reality of him saying, you worship this, 
and you convert or you die. You worship or you burn. That was the ultimatums that King Nebuchadnezzar gave, right? Now, now we have something very interesting in our culture and society today. Um, a, a language that's come up in these last few years is the language of cancel culture. Anyone heard of that language before? And, and it's this concept of our culture and society today that's very much the spirit of what's going on here is you believe what we tell you to believe or we're going to ruin your reputation, we're going to destroy your life, and we're going to make sure that you are marginalized from culture and society. It's the same perspective. It's the same worldview. You worship what we tell you to worship, or we're going to marginalize you and even take your life away. It's the very essence of what is going on in this culture. And I mean, sadly enough, we, we see this uh, repeated in history as well um, with the Jewish people. Um, when we talk about Jews in the story being thrown into a fiery furnace, what story of history does that remind you of? The Holocaust, right? This is nothing new to human culture and society is bow down to us or we destroy you. That is the essence of the temptations that we have in this world. And so, it tells us again, nothing is new for humanity. We're just evil and as wicked as we always have been. And so we see from the story all the demands of the king, and yet as all the Babylonians are bowing down and worshiping this idol, we see three Jews, three of the exiles, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are their Babylonian names. And they refuse to do what? They refuse to bow down. Now, they are quiet about it. It's not like this is some massive political protest. It's not like they have signs and are picketing. Uh, it's not like they're revolting. Uh, this is something that's subversive. This is something that's anti-kingdom. But there's a group of people who rat them out. And the group of people are called what? The Chaldeans. Now, here's what blows my mind about the story. Remember what King Nebuchadnezzar said to all the Chaldeans who could not interpret his dreams. He says, you, and, you tell me what my dream is, or here's the consequence. What was the consequence? You're all going to die. And who are the people that saved them? The Jews, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are literally the people that just saved them. And now we see the story shifting to the point where what happened after they could interpret the dream. King Nebuchadnezzar put them in places of prominence and prestige in the Babylon Empire, and they sort of took rule and reign over administration. And the Chaldeans were jealous. It was sort of this mentality, you took our jobs, right? You took what was ours. And so this is sort of a, a time for them to get back, get revenge. And so they rat out these three Jews, and they, they bring before the king the attention that, hey, when they're playing the music and we're supposed to bow down, these three guys aren't doing it. With the motive of we want to destroy them, we want to take their life, we, we want to remove them from positions of power. And so, we see it brought before Nebuchadnezzar. So, let's look at this scripture together, 16 and 19. It's a key, key passage I want to focus on. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, 
O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. In other words, we don't need to defend ourselves about why we're not worshiping the Babylonian God. It says, if this be so, in other words, if you truly follow through on your threat to throw us in a furnace, our God whom we serve is able to do what? Is able to deliver us. It's a courage, a courageous, boldest thing to say, isn't it? That even if you throw in the fire, our God is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand. That's a beautiful boldness and confidence of trust and faith before their God, isn't it? Amen? And here's what else is beautiful. They have this confidence, they have this certainty that their God is a deliverer, right? And part of that would have been, they, uh, again, as the Jewish people, they witnessed one of the most wild acts of deliverance of all of history when we look at the Exodus story. They know their God is deliverer. They know their God can work in supernatural, mighty ways to deliver them. But here's the thing. What do they say next? But if what? But if, let's say it together, not. But if not. In other words, we are certain, we trust our God, He has the power to deliver us, but even if He doesn't deliver us, we know that He is good, we know that He is faithful, we do not doubt His purposes. So even if not, be it known to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words, you can't take anything away from us. But if not, and, and here's what they're saying, here's what they're communicating, here's where their faith lies in God. They're saying, our God is able to deliver us. And even if He doesn't, we are still going to worship Him. Amen? Even if He doesn't, He is good. He is faithful. He is worthy. Is that our perspective, church? I think so often we get so caught up in our circumstances that we doubt the goodness of God. And yet the story reminds us so deeply that even when God doesn't come through on our purposes and our desire and our will, that He is still God. And here's the thing, can, can God heal cancer? Amen. We're stand, we have Gary here. We have a bunch of people here that have been healed from cancer. Yet at the same time, we have stories of people in this church who haven't been healed from cancer. And yet is God still good? Amen. We, we, we know so many things about this life, whether it be relationships or whether it be sickness or, or whether it be financial or whether it be um, relationships that we long for people to know God that don't come to faith. We know that God can do all those things. We know that God has the power to do them, and yet we have to come to our realization that even when He doesn't, His purposes and His will and His desire is so much greater than ours. And His wisdom is so much greater than ours. And so what they're saying is our, our, we know our God can do anything, we know our God can deliver us from the situation, but we're not going to make our God do anything because He knows better than we do. He knows better than we do. 
And so King Nebuchadnezzar, out of response to this, what do we see? He gets furious. He, he, he says this furnace. And again, where does the furnace come from? What have they been building? The statue, right? What do you need to break down gold? A massive fiery furnace, right? This is where it's coming from. So the very thing that's creating this idol, he's threatening to throw them into. Now, who knows how hot a furnace has to be to break down gold? Around 2,000 degrees, crazy hot, right? So we're seeing an incredibly hot furnace, and what's Nebuchadnezzar's response? It's still not hot enough. Now, logically, it is. But it's this fury that's building inside of him. And so he says, heat it up, heat it up, heat it up. It's vengeance. It's this retaliation of those who rebelled against his authority. And we see them cast into the fire. Again, this is a supernatural event. If you're someone who here is a naturalist, I'll process supernaturalism with you later, but this is outside, again, of our human reason and logic at times. Something supernatural is going on here. The, the protection of these three men to endure a furnace is astounding. I can't even say that word because it's so astounding. There we go. <laughs> And so we see something beautiful, this supernatural act of deliverance taking place. The supernatural act of deliverance because not only do they don't burn up, what's interesting to me is some of the things that get burnt off is all the Babylonian attire that they would have worn. And we see them living in the fire and we see something else in the fire. What's the other thing we see in the fire? A fourth person. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar is all confused. He says, I thought we put three people in the fire. Now, I'm a king. I should know how to count to five. And there's a fourth person all of a sudden. What's going on here? And what's fascinating to me is, is this language that, that Daniel is going to pick up in chapter 7, which becomes incredibly, incredibly important is Nebuchadnezzar sees a fourth person in the fire. And how is this fourth person described? Someone who looks like a son of the gods. Someone who looks like a son of the gods. In other words, there's this the divinity attached to this fourth person. There's, there's something that's distinct about this fourth being that is not human. And Jesus, in, in Daniel 7, we realize that one of Jesus' most favorite designations of himself is the Son of Man, which doesn't attribute to his humanity, it actually attributes to his deity. But we'll get there in chapter 7. But there's this beautiful description of then this, this being. Now, who do we know that being to be now that we've read the story of Scripture, church? It's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. It's Jesus entering into the fire with these three. It's Jesus entering into the most threatening uh, death and life situation these three men will ever face, and yet he is present with them. He is with them in their suffering. He is with them in their trial. He is with them in their seemingly death. 
and does not, not just give us a beautiful prefiguration of the crucifixion of Jesus, where Jesus is a God who comes to suffer with us, a God who comes to enter into this human existence to face death itself and to come out on the other side victorious, amen? This is the beautiful reality we're seeing of this prefiguration of, of Jesus and this expectation and longing for what would ultimately be the cross of a God who, who dies for us in the fire and the God who is with us in the fire and a God who sustains us through the greatest threats we could ever have in this life. And so, King Nebuchadnezzar again, he says, the fourth one's like a son of the gods. There's a divine, supernatural coming to what Jesus has done. Wild story. Now, to end the story, we see Nebuchadnezzar and he, God's again breaking him down throughout these first three, four chapters of Daniel. Has Nebuchadnezzar become a Christian yet at the end of the story or follower of what? Yahweh. No, because he goes the complete opposite. He says, okay, look at this supernatural event that Daniel and his friends, God, has done. Uh, this is obviously a God who is more powerful than the other gods, so we have to worship him. We have to adore him. And he says, anyone who doesn't worship this God, Yahweh, what's the consequence for them? He goes back to the death threat, right? That's King Nebuchadnezzar's bread and butter is death threats, right? And we know that's for most kings and dictators. It's death threats. That's how they control. That's how they have power. And yet we realize our God doesn't control and have power like that. We see this description of him going the complete opposite of trying to make it a state religion, so to say. And yet what we're going to see beautifully in chapter 4 next week is more of a true understanding from Nebuchadnezzar as God breaks him down to understand who God truly is. And so... How do we respond to this story? How do we come out of this story and, and get a deeper glimpse into our own lives and what it means for us? And, and I want to look at the faith, the, the trust of these three men that endured an incredibly hostile environment, that endured one of the most um, disheartening threats they could ever have against them of being thrown into a furnace. And the first concept I want to look at is that we worship because God is worthy even when life is not what we want. Amen? We worship because God is worthy even when life is not what we want. Who here has the life and circumstances that they've always wanted? Right? None of us. None, none of us go through the experience and circumstances that we long for, what we desire. We, we see these three friends in Daniel being thrown in the worst circumstances they could ever imagine. Being thrown in the worst situations they could ever fathom. And, and literally, again, as exiles, having everything taken from them. E even their positions of power and prestige in the Babylonian Empire, like why would you want to serve a kingdom that destroyed your own? Right? And so we, we come through this life and we walk through this life realizing that we don't worship God to get the results we want. Amen? We worship God to find His will and His purpose for our life. 
Uh, something that Ahmed shared yesterday, which I thought was beautiful, is one of the questions that Ahmed struggled with as a child was, was God, why did you make me blind or why am I blind? And the story you came to, Ahmed, was the story from Scripture, right, of, of what, is Jesus, what does Jesus tell the blind man? He says, it wasn't the sins of your father, but it was why? So that God could be glorified, right? And, and it's this understanding that even when life circumstances turn against us, God can still be glorified through it. And God can create something beautiful out of it. I mean, you think, did you think these three friends wanted to jump in the fire? But look what God did. God changed the empire. God changed the heart of a king, not because they experienced what they wanted, but because God's purposes were far greater. Second thing, we worship through suffering, resting in the presence of God. When we go through suffering, when we go through hardship, we, we have this promise of Jesus that when he sends his disciples, he says, go make disciples, and, and here's the hope that you have as you walk through the difficulties of the life. Behold, I am, what? With you. My presence will sustain you. My presence will remind you that I am good and faithful. I... I will bring you through the path and hardship of this life, and trouble will always be close and unavoidable, but I will be with you through it all. And this is interesting because if, if we worship, in a sense, a, a life of comfort and ease, if we worship convenience or we worship what we long for and desire in this life, uh, we will eventually deny our God, won't we? Because his plans and purposes will always push against that. And yet when we rest in the presence of God to sustain us through these difficult circumstances, we realize that we can endure all things with a God who is with us. And then here's the last thought I want to have from this story. Is we worship in courage. We worship in courage because God will either deliver us from death or he will bring us through death. Amen? And that is the hope of the gospel we have today. That, that Jesus has defeated one of our greatest enemies of death itself. And that we know that even as we walk through death, that he will either deliver us from uh, the threats of death, like sin, trials, persecution, martyrdom, whatever may come, sickness, or he will deliver us through resurrection after death. And this is the, the beautiful promise that we all have, is that when we pray for sickness to be defeated, when we pray for evil and injustice to be defeated, when we, we pray through um, people to be delivered from even the hands of the opposers and hands of persecutors, we know that God will either answer yes in this life or the next. Amen? That is the hope we have, which, which gives us a courage that endures all circumstances of life. That gives us a courage to endure everything. So I want to close with this thought. A biblical scholar named Greg Beale, one of my favorite scholars, and he wrote this, and I thought it was very fitting for Daniel 3 
when I read this quote. He says, what people revere, in other words, what we worship, what we live for, what our habits teach us about our ultimate purpose and desires, he says, what people revere, they do what? Resemble. In other words, when you worship something, when you um, live for something, it will form you. It will form the type of person you are. It will form the kind of human you are. And it says, what people revere, they resemble either for ruin or for what? Restoration. And when we revere anything above and beyond God, when we worship anything other than our Creator, God Himself, the only one who is worthy of our worship, when we revere and worship anything, it ends up destroying us. It ends up ruining us. It ends up disappointing us. It ends up letting us down. And yet, when we revere God, that is where we try, find true restoration. Amen? Amen. Let me close this in prayer, and then we're going to spend some time in communion in response. Gracious Father, we come before you. And Lord, we, we look at this story, and we were reminded of who you are, reminded that you are a good and a faithful God, a God who enters into our suffering and a God who even enters into our threats of death. And yet you are a God who brings victory. You are a God who brings deliverance. You are a God who brings salvation. And so we come before you this morning to remind ourselves of who you are as this beautiful, mighty God. And we pray that our trust in you would grow and grow and grow so that as we worship you with our lives, it would bring about restoration, that it would bring about healing, that it would bring about renewal, that it would bring about transformation, not just to our lives, but to the lives of those around us. And so we pray that we would worship, that we would revere the only thing that is worthy, and that is you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that you would teach us to eradicate and eliminate so many of the idols, so many things of false worship that will destroy us, that will leave us ruined. And so give us that wisdom, we pray, by your Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.